there is a shift. And a lot of people also believe that what they call the veil between life and death is really gets thinner and thinner for these people who are dying and they can see through it. It's some level of their being can see through it and they will maybe they can see these ancestors. And my question is, in what form are they seeing them? This is the Bounce Back Generation podcast. Today, we're going to speak with Susan Oppie. Gentle trigger warning here. This podcast subject today is about death and dying and the grieving process that we go through when a loved one is gone. Susan is an advocate for bringing back the ancient traditions of honoring our deceased loved ones through ritual and providing after-death care to our dead. She believes that such reconnections with our final rite of passage are not only our inalienable rights as human beings, but can also benefit the grieving process in beautiful, healing, and even transformative ways. She's the founder of One Washcloth, a nonprofit dedicated to guiding people through the experience of death and dying of a loved one. We've known you for quite a while, for a few months. You've been volunteering with Bounce Back Generation and sharing your knowledge and your insights into the death and grieving process. So thank you. And also joining us today is Nasser Alpakal, and he's our blogger at Bounce Back Generation. And Nasser, I want you to just say hi to everybody and share a little bit of your insight. We're going to be talking about death. We're going to be talking about grieving, and it's a heavy subject. I know at first when we started thinking about doing this podcast, you pulled back a little bit. Do you want to talk about what your feelings were then and what brought you around to saying, hey, yeah, I think I want to participate in this? I want to say for topics like this, it all started uh, with Susan introducing me to One Washcloth and the work she does there and the conversations that she's had surrounding death really changed the way that I view it. It went from something scary and unknown to something that's just another part in our long lives. From something that is a little bit more confusing than other things to be very simple. And that it's just when we move on to a different realm and for different people, that can be anything religious or spiritual, but it really is just us transitioning. And all that just makes it a lot simpler to understand, less scary. So it all is really thanks to Susan that helped me feel less apprehensive, more comfortable talking and eventually writing and now speaking about this type of subject. Yeah. Thank you, Nasser. Like I said, I think a lot of people have that kind of feeling, Susan, that they don't want to talk about death. They don't want to face it. They don't want to think about it. What actually got you into this world? Long story short, I became a nurse almost 25 years ago, registered nurse almost 25 years ago, because I wanted to travel and see the world. That really was my primary reason for becoming a nurse. And instead, it turned into this journey into something I, you know, I would never have um, foreseen. But one thing that struck me early in my career is just how disconnected from death we are, whether it was in hospitals where I you know, the, the protocol was to clear the bed once a person has died and get him, get the bed ready for the next person. Or like even in home health, before I was a nurse, I was a home health aide. And 
you know, the family was really wanting to call the funeral home pretty quickly, I noticed back then. And I didn't really even know what the rules were or anything, but it, it tapped into something deep in me, especially I can see this in retrospect, that it was confusing that I had, I'd been around some dying and death before all that, but it really became a part of my career really early on. And so I just did my own thing to hopefully take care of myself as best I could. I really, again, wasn't clear on how deep this situation was going into me. But like a year into my nursing career, I was advised by a, a counselor to maybe clearly there's grief and stress building up in you. Why don't you try to find a creative outlet to get that energy out because it's not doing you any good. And if you could express it in a way that somehow was cathartic or therapeutic to you, then that would be a great benefit. And that's what I did. I ended up exploring art options and how I can really work, use art to help me with the grieving and the stress that I was going through. So were you feeling the grief of the patients and their families? Were you taking that on or were you also bringing up your own past grief as well? Probably a lot of both, but in addition, sometimes patients in hospitals are there for months. We're grieving too, but sometimes patients are in there just overnight. And there's a whole, there's a whole lot of layers of uh, grief and how everybody grieves. I, I think of the emergency room people who just, they maybe see that person for 20 minutes and they put their, their best effort into saving that person. That's grief. There's grief when you can't do what you're you've been trained to do and so on all those levels but yes definitely there's a vicarious kind of grief a lot of stuff passes from energies of people in a room and you know you, there's a lot of emotion going on at these times and so it's all that mixed up together and if um and i wasn't a very good um practitioner of processing my feelings back then. And I think I'm more of an empath, but and so it just gets built up if you're not careful. And yeah, personal stuff, even medical stuff I was going through at that time. It was a big time in my life as I got into the nursing profession. It sounds like what you've noticed is that there's this kind of rush to just get through it and get it over with in a way. Actually, I have a friend whose father-in-law just died, and I was asking her yesterday how she and her husband were doing. And she, we had our moments, we cried, we got over it, life goes on. And this happened literally a week ago. And I said, I think that's a lot that you guys are going through. He was sick for a while, and they were busy in the hospital and all of that. And I think it's just part of our culture. And I don't know, Nasser, if you want to chime in on, I know you come from the Muslim culture, there's different rituals and different ways of handling that. And I think that's kind of what Susan's trying to tap into. Can we do something to bring ourselves back into that moment, even though it is painful and you want to be modern Americans, get over it, get on and get back to work? I think it all depends on what that death looked like to someone is it a tragic death due to violent and unexpected circumstances in an accident maybe even worth a violent crime or some sort of sudden illness or was it a slow process it all depends and one thing i've noticed is when people say oh, i've gone over i've moved on it's usually because they provided some sort of compassion and dignified end-of-life care uh, it was a slow process where they've had the grief early it came the grief the onset of the grief was earlier even before the passing away and it then it gives them kind of a buffer where they're able to 
respond in a way that is less intense, say, for them outwardly. But you never know what this person is doing it to themselves. She could she could be saying, your, your friend, we're perfectly fine. We've moved on. But they cry every night at home or deep down inside they're broken, which is also completely fine. It's all an individual thing. And that's what makes the grieving process so hard to talk about. And that's what makes it so hard to work with people who are grieving. We all share the same emotions and the same hormones that those emotions come from. We're all different people who express those things differently and then act upon them a lot differently. Yeah, that's well put. That's where the rituals come in because they require us to slow down, right? Yeah, and it, but what Nasser said just really brought up a few different things is the different types of grief people are grieving. Like when dementia say is involved, there's so many le- levels of grief going on there, which you're losing through that person who's getting into their dementia. And also I was re- remembering how when I started getting into the memorial artwork and really researching it, one thing that struck me was back in, in the Victorian times in our Western culture, like late 1800s when Queen Victoria mourned for a year where it became like a national thing where they were draping black scarves and people, the women wore black and for a year. And in some cultures, they have whole dress codes, as we call it, the modern route, which to me just seems sounds like the unhealthy route. Sometimes that modern word, I'm thinking, what does that even mean? Because it sure has taken us away from some very deep and innate needs that we all, I think we all share. And I think Nasser also hit a point. It's like, we don't know what they're doing behind their doors because what our society has framed for us is you got what, three days for a bereavement or I don't know, but that's very unnatural. And I'm afraid I've forgotten your question. So what no, you, you, you answer the question, which is okay. how does ritual help us uh, to create yeah. that space right. where that grieving can happen? And it's, you don't have to, you don't have to think about it all the time. You go, you almost walk through, like blindly walk through a process. And my father died. There were, he's sick from India and there was very set things. And at the time I was like, oh gosh, you know, we have to sit for three days while they read the scriptures and we all, there was like, you have to eat certain things. But in retrospect, every step of that caused us to slow down, to be in that moment to be like, I'm okay, everything's fine. And then you never know, then five days later, I remember boarding a plane and I couldn't stop crying. I was crying and crying and I just, I kept wiping my eyes, couldn't stop crying. And thankfully I had that. And, but a lot of times what I think happens in an American culture is like you said, you get those three days, five days, whatever it is, bereavement. And then two months later, you're not feeling great. And somebody Hmm. says, what's going on? I don't know. What happened in your life? Recently, my dad died. But you're not supposed to feel that. You're supposed to be over it by then. So talk about what are the... So you have a nonprofit called One Washcloth. One Washcloth. Talk about that. And we're not officially a nonprofit. Yeah, we're not officially a nonprofit. It's been the three of us nurses who just said, let's do this. So we're basically what we call a charitable initiative. Three nurses, myself and two other RNs, met up 10 years ago now at a, a National Home Funeral Alliance conference. And we can get into that if you want a bit. But it, that's all about educating people about what their rights are regarding caring for our own dead in this country. But the three of us, Rochelle Martin, Lynn, Lynn Holtzman and I, we met up and along with another woman, uh, Cassandra Yonder, we just were discussing how we can bring the concept of caring for our own dead 
like into a hospital situation where everything's so busy and chaotic so many times. But what can we bring that would be simple, non-threatening, and just something that could really help, like what we're talking about, the ritual and the process of this. Again, we're going to the final rite of passage here. This is what this is all about. This is like a once in a lifetime thing that has just happened. And it's important, we believe it's important to market. And we feel that what one washcloth offers and what, it, what basically it offers is the idea of encouraging people to use a washcloth after a person has died. And whether that means they're just wiping the brow of the person or wiping the hand or whatever um, they can, the whole body, it allows them it, it allows them a whole lot. It allows them time. It allows, it gives them permission to touch the body, which so many people believe is just off limits when a death occurs. And it just allows you to, allows a person to provide some sort of love, a last, a last chance of showing that love in physical form. And to, and I think it also helps, especially when you have more, a couple of days about what you were talking about with your father's death, it allows your heart to catch up with, with, with what your brain already knows. So the brain just has a way of going, oh, okay, they're dead. Oh gosh, you gotta make phone calls, gotta. And it's in this art system here, it's the whole funeral world. It's, I know some people feel very grateful for just having to focus on a funeral because that can be take up all your time and energy right there for a week or so. But then there's delayed grief. And yeah, so that's what one washcloth does. It, brings you into this reality in a non-threatening in a very natural way and it's very simple just this using a washcloth to do what you need to do or just to participate in some way that you didn't even know you could our ancestors have always done prior to the 1950s yeah early so 1900s our ancestors were still doing it why do you think we we started to separate from that? I've heard you talk a little bit about some of these macro issues that have arisen in our modern capitalist world that have caused that. Can you talk about that? Okay. If I were to pinpoint an area, it's similar to the Victorian time I was just mentioning, but it's what's considered the second industrial revolution of this country when industry was just starting up in all different directions. And that included the funeral industry, it included the medical industry. And so those were two parts of it. And I also put a third piece of the assimilation of our culture with people who are from other areas. I'm talking refugees, I'm talking immigrants, and I'm talking of our darker history of the enslaved situation we had for so many hundreds of years where people were taken away or left their culture for whatever reason, or even the indigenous people here who were forced into the assimilating situations in those schools and everything they were separated from their traditions and their cultures and nature and and so that in combination with the modern world modern health world model medical world where people started dying away from home there's no people they were their technology was getting to a place where they're like okay if we could bring them in or we have whatever we might be able to give them some more time or whatever but anyway so people started dying more in homes also, in the late 1800s, there was a civil war in this country where the baby funeral industry was just taking form. And they may have seen their chance because they certainly latched on to it. And especially when it came to embalming bodies, that's where thousands of young men primarily were killed on battlefields in a different part of the country from where they came from. And 
families wanted to have those bodies back. And so that's when the embalming got a big push. The and Civil then War. The, the Civil War and with the yes. death of um, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. yeah. So those two events in the end of the late 1800s really put, put the funeral industry on a map. And there are some interesting books about that time period. This one I had read, they talked about how early on in the Civil War, when the funeral industry was just catching hold, and they were advertising embalming on these roads where the soldiers would have to walk, as if it was, a, as if it was going to be a comfort to the soldiers to, don't worry, <laughs> whatever happens, we'll get you home. But then one of the higher ups in the Civil War were like, I think this is hurting our soldiers' morale. Can we take those down? And they took them down. But anyway. How incredibly sad to be like, that's, oh gosh. So but what an that advertisement was, to see yeah. on a, yeah. as you're walking into war. But that's this now, new so inter- industrial boost that was going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, what you said earlier, Susan, was incredible. It's something that I've actually was just researching uh, a, a few days ago on how the history of this country, of capitalism and of white supremacy on the profound impact that this had on how we as Americans grieve in this country. Racial discrimination, capitalism, unequal wealth distribution has led to the unequal distribution of resources, which means unequal distribution to quality of life and healthcare, which causes certain communities, usually black and brown LGBTQ plus communities to be marginalized and experience higher rates of preventable death. And this waters down death for a lot of Americans, especially those in marginalized LGBT black and brown communities where capitalism and, and white supremacy and um, this whole idea of the, the false notion of equality in this nation, when it is actually the exact opposite, has rapidly increased the devaluing of life in our culture and the devaluing of life in American society. And it all starts, it all begins from the, the origins of this nation, of white supremacy and capitalism. And I'm so glad that this was brought up because this is one of the most misunderstood and least understood points of this topic. Amen. It's a big topic. It's a big topic. And you put it very well. And one, another thing that we keep popping these ideas in my mind, Nasser, that when you talked about the white supremacy, especially, and how when people were dying more in hospitals and when people were feeling that they were white people were feeling more wealthy, it's like keeping up with the Joneses is that kind of gross, com- you know, whatever that term is we use here. It's like, why, what, who cares? But it's like the same thing happened in the funeral industry as it does with any place where people want to show that they have money. And that's when the funeral industry was starting to charge people. And people were like, yeah, let's just have them do it. It'll make people see that we've got some some clout here or some we're moving up in the stratosphere. And I know you, I mean, oh, yeah. And another thing you said also triggered something because I had mentioned the home funeral movement earlier. And again, the National Home Funeral Alliance is our country's go-to, at least I feel, in educating people about what their innate and inalienable rights are as far as caring for their own but when I first be- found, became aware of this whole option, I had no idea that we were even legally allowed to do this. It just wasn't even in my way of thinking back then when I became a nurse that people still cared for their own at, at home. When I did find out about it, I just be- remember feeling so angry because I worked with so many people who couldn't afford hardly to put their, their electricity on. 
and usually people of color. And this was primarily in San Antonio, Texas. And when I remember so clearly when I was um, called to a home, when I was doing hospice care and you know, going to people's homes, and I'd be, we'd be called, especially when there's a death or if there's like pain that's not being managed well. And I, whenever I got there, I don't remember, I think it might've been a pain call, but by the time I got there, the, the woman had died. And I remember the, the husband just being really, really stressed i think and it, anyway and, and the grandchild was there but she wanted a mariachi band at her funeral and he was just like we can't afford both we can't afford a funeral and to hire a mariachi band and it was just like i, I was I, I don't know it still brings tears to my eyes that's what we, that's the level we get here with it and yeah like you're saying the white privilege and everything it, it it just it permeates everything in this country and clearly it has for a very long time it's paradoxical and to, to Nasser's point and to what you were just talking about, that we live in a society where we see death all the time. It's on our video games and our movies and TV shows and like, oh, yeah, there's an I'm going to watch the murder mystery, whatever. And we but then when death is real, we do that separating ourselves from it. And I know that we were talking earlier and you mentioned that you, you live in Oakland and that there's people know there's a large homeless population and there was a man who died who was homeless and how it was like next day, sweep up his tent and who's there for him. But then a celebrity dies and we go in the morning and we never met the celebrity, but that homeless guy is the guy you see every day when you walk into the bus or whatever. Or you tried not to see that guy every day you, you turn your head or what all those things that we have been i don't know if we've been trained but it certainly is part of how we deal with things here and yeah and it's when i go back to also the fact that we're in such denial that's how all this these video games and stuff can happen in my opinion wars and when everything else any society that's in denial of such a basic truth we're bound to be we're bound to never thrive we're bound to never be healthy so that's that's been my mission is like guys we're it's gonna happen the sooner we start really being honest about it i think our lives can improve greatly across the board but it's complex for sure unless there's an amazing discovery where no one will ever die and we will be frozen in liquid yeah. nitrogen then no, it, but it, no, you're thanks. right you're so right Susan. <laughs> i don't understand the wanting you're to live so forever right. thing maybe it's just me but i'm fine with at some point i'm tired you've been frozen for so long what are you what's your skin going to be like and what are you going to be like in one four decades or <laughs> i don't know and that brings another point what is worth living what makes mm. the life worth living right what makes the death worth happening at the end because i'm not talking about someone losing their life early and early is a whole subjective thing, but mm-hmm. it seems pretty obvious what late is. If someone is 90 years old, that's a long life. We human beings, we have a life expectancy like deer do, like elephants do, like cats do. Like that. We do. We have one. We have a biological shelf life where meat and bones, just like all the other creatures of the earth. So eventually we're going to have to get society to recognize that so that they can care for it a lot because it seems so wild americans we love animals we'll care for animals we'll, we'll, we'll go head over heels with protecting pandas animals thousands of miles away from us but from when it comes to the hundreds of millions of animals people us around us we, we don't care and and i want to i think one thing that's really when we talk about our own death or the closeness of death to us 
one thing that I find really comforting is when I hear from hospice nurses and they talk about what actually happens when you die and that there seems to be some rhythm to it. There's a pattern to it that people will go like the death rattle. And maybe you can talk about that, that you get the death rattle, you start to slow down or you, or I've heard that a lot of times, and this happened to my cousin, he was he's much older than me and he uh, was in the hospital and he rallied one day and everyone said oh he's gonna be fine his heart's okay he's gonna go home in a few days and then the next day he died and that seems to be really common that people will rally they'll see their relatives they'll say goodbye mm, and, yeah or they'll yeah. see people who've passed on my father saw people that were passed on and he was saying he was talking in Punjabi to them and I'm gonna see yeah what are you doing here so can you talk about that? What What's going on? Well, that's, that is a mystery. I think it's a mystery to everybody what's going on, but it's so common. And you do, yeah, you hear these stories, you see these things, and you're like, something's up here. But yeah, the rallying, I, I wondered if it's something that's biologically set in people that when things are shutting down, like it just, everything's thrown into just keeping your body one more chance. I don't know. Some people think it's just... One last, the spirit just pushing out one more time in this physical form to, to celebrate or to enjoy. It's a mystery. That it really is. And it doesn't happen with everybody. And and one thing you were said though right away with the hospice, it's any your family member who died like that next day. People wait for people wait to get on hospice. I, I should have looked up the average length of stay these times on hospice. Well, not even stay, but average length of hospice service can be sometimes as low as a week. That's for average when they can have six months and they can, it can be re, what's it called? When you reviewed and then added, continued, if you still meet the criteria, but because of our society and our need to keep putting it off and for what, as Nasser said, what are we putting it off for when we're really sick? And a lot of people don't even come on. And I've, I can't tell you how many times I've either been to homes or got a person when I was working like a, a brick and mortar hospice building that they would just come for a few hours and they'd be gone because they did all the treatments possible and they the family or whoever was just determined to try everything and then so people just don't even have a sense of what that final end of life really is and how beautiful it can be how it how hard it can be of course but that is what hospice is supposed to do is help you with all the, th the things that you can't do by yourself but but there are some, there is some really good things that can come out of it if you just know but but yeah there are a lot of stages to dying and again like stages of grief not they don't you don't see all of them um and depends on again what, what Nas was saying what is the situation what type of death are we talking about so one of the first things you see and that can I think even start a month or two before the death is that people start withdrawing and that can be like they're not just don't want so many visitors they don't want to really be talking they may start sleeping a little more and that is believed to be like because there there's a shift going on we don't know what it is but there's something is happening where the physical life is still here but and again it's whatever your beliefs are about what is that next place but there is a shift and a lot of people also believe that what they call the veil between life and death is really gets thinner and thinner for these people who are dying and they can see through it. It's some level of their being can see through it and they will maybe they can see these ancestors. And my question is, in what form are they seeing them? Because our ancestors 
once they die, they're, they're, they no longer have that physical form. Our memories are getting triggered in there too, unless there's just something way beyond my scope of understanding is that these bodies are really forming that people are actually seeing and if that even makes any sense. But we, I think it's a mystery to even those who probably tried to research it. And there's no way to scan a brain of a person who's in that state or really see what's going on. But it's fascinating when it happens. And when you're like going, okay. And as a nurse, I, I would just go along with it. As long as it wasn't threatening or scaring, scary to a person that they were seeing these visions or it seemed very natural. And so we go along with that, but hard to know exactly what's going on as far as, yeah. So sleeping and that withdrawal is first and then not even needing to eat. People just stop wanting to eat. That's another stage general often that's pretty common. Because your body is shutting down. That physical part is shutting down. It no longer needs to be running errands, no longer needs to even be getting out of bed. You've been mostly sleeping um, all this time. And so what little energy is left shouldn't be focusing on trying to digest food that your body is not even needing. Because that can really cause some complications if you're building up a lot of undigested food in your stomach. So that's another thing. And then the, 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 what they call the death rattle. What the is death the death rattle? The death rattle is basically just the fact that people aren't swallowing anymore. And throughout our every day of our lives, we're producing a lot of saliva and we're just swallowing all day long. Um, But once you get into that state where your body is just not quite functioning and you're lying on your back and the saliva is just collecting in the back of your throat, it gets can be very unpleasant, unsettling for people to hear that kind of noise. Mm And oftentimes just by turning the, the head or turning the body, you'll allow the gravity to let the saliva go into the cheek. And other times people want to get medication that's going to dry the whole body up. That can cause other discomfort. So I, I'm one to always go for the more natural approach and just say, let's just try repositioning your loved one here and seeing if that works. And it often does, because that really is what the death rattle is. Well, I would think that the goal is to create a peaceful transition for the person who's dying. And then with one washcloth and what you're talking about with the rituals to create a a pathway to grief as well, so that there's some peace for that person that is watching that process or the loved one. And one thing that's interesting that you brought up in an earlier conversation was that there's sometimes you're grieving and the person isn't necessarily a loved one. Talk about that, that sometimes people have to grieve for people that didn't treat them all that well. Yeah, the way I see it, and I think it happens a lot. And again, as a hospice nurse, I have seen dysfunction comes out in families in buckets, in in great large amounts when someone's dying. So you, you get to see a lot of stuff that's just been maybe brewing for a while. So there's a lot of situations where there was no love loss, for sure. And when, and it's going to probably be a big relief for, for the person who's still alive that person is gone and I I think it's probably hard for people to talk like say those kinds of things but it's just true so again if death is a final rite of passage for this person who's dying whether they're a loved one or not it's also a rite of passage for you as a person who remains and so whether that whether that person the deceased is someone we're going to just be lost feel lost for a while of having them gone or, or if it's someone you're just like oh my gosh thank goodness it's still, I think, an important um, thing to mark in your life because it is a, it's a, a rite of passage. That person is no longer going to be playing that, the same role that they played with you before. And 
yeah, I'd say market to really say that this is a, a clear change, a clear moment in my life where I can, I can, I have a chance of doing something else with my life or I'm not putting that well, but it's, I think it's a valuable, a valuable enough and important enough moment in your life, whether you love that person or hated them, that, that you would benefit also from some ritual. And I don't mean taking care of the body even. I, for me, ritual is so simple. It can be so simple. And whatever speaks to you, especially if you're not someone who loved that person, what would feel good to you to be like, and it's going to be good for you. You're not, it's not about holding on to that anger or anything, whatever you feel like you can do to, to just release something, to, to move on in your life. We want to actually ask you to share your tool, which is how to mark that milestone. And that tool that you've talked about, which I think is really cool, is using art. So talk about like the dioramas. I know that's a little bit more complicated, but there's other collages and things you can do that yeah. can be, you don't have to hang it on your wall, but you can do that process to kind yeah. of help you. I'm, I'm thinking, milestone. yeah, before I, I'll do that. I'll talk about that. But I was just thinking, okay, if it wasn't someone you love, I was just picturing a collage of a person for a person for, again, it's for you. So I can see where a collage could even work in that situation of helping yeah, you. Just maybe you out. just make a, a closed door and you yeah. just say I'm closing yeah. the door of that relationship now. That's right. That's right. So, so yeah, I mentioned already that like a year into my nursing career, you know, a therapist suggested that I, you know, see what I can do to creatively get this out. And so I, for like, for that following year, I was really like, uh, I puttered around a different thing. I was like, I don't really, I don't know. I don't know what I can do. But it came to me when I, I got a photograph of my little nephew and I grew up in Texas. So you know, Western clothing and stuff is pretty common there. But my nephew grew up in Japan. And so when he would visit, an uncle of mine would make sure he had a new little cowboy outfit to where I have, saw a photo of him just in my parents' kind of sterile front yard. And I was like, he belongs in the Wild West. So that, so I put him into this wild, three-dimensional Wild West scene for like his fourth birthday. And, and you know, and that just like, I'm like, this is it. This is, <laughs> this is what she was talking about. Because it was just... It just felt so cathartic just to put my energy somewhere else. And I just started pumping out these dioramas for friends, kids and stuff. And then at some point, I can't really remember the moment when I was like, I'd like to make one for my grandfather who had died in maybe 10 years before. I can't remember now the timeline, but, and I did. And then I was like, that felt really good too, connecting with him again and, and just through my memory and just the moments that I just so enjoyed sharing with him, it was really a beautiful thing. And and that's when I got into exploring memorial art, the history, and I call it memorial art. I don't know if that's an official term at all, but it's been going on since there's been human beings on the planet or even homo, pre-homo sapiens. There is proof mm -hmm. that our, pre, our predecessors from our species also needed to somehow mark deaths and things like that anyway the research into memorial art led me to wanting to share that with people in the public venues and I started going to public um, libraries and presenting workshops where people could make collage and I, I told people it could even be a tool for whatever it is you want to go home as your creative process because people are like I'm not an artist I'm not an artist and just look at this as I don't know is even what, but you can go and turn it into, you can go make a bowl, a pot of soup for someone in their honor. And that's art to me. That's just art. And right. it's also ritual. Right. If you have that person in mind and that's your intention, if the intention is there to honor the person, then it's ritual. But yeah, people that really 
enjoyed these memorial art workshops where we made the collage and it allowed them to freely talk about the person who had died could have been who died 20 years ago you you get shut down just for those because you've got the three days of bereavement and you're supposed to start showing up for work again and people look you know you're on some sort of timeline with people it's they died three months ago uh, things like that those kinds of workshops were really wonderful and i think a lot of people appreciated them I feel like we should explain what a diorama is. I love a diorama. I know what it is. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. I'll just throw out that if people were to think of it, if they've been to a museum or even especially a natural history museum, there'd be those three-dimensional scenes of animals or, or, or people, indigenous people, and they live how we do that in museums. And anyway, so three-dimensional scenes of, and they can be fiction they can they can resemble something that was real but yeah so a diorama is a miniature form of a three-dimensional scene and again it can be something you completely make up which is what i've done or it be something that based on a photograph and you try to recreate that photograph but you go from real life form and bring it all down you can see like cityscapes cityscapes are of di- can be dioramas you can go like say to new york i know new york you can see all of Manhattan. And to me, that's a diorama because it's just these tiny little buildings. He's showing you all the streets yeah. and everything. Um, does that make sense? So, does that help? Yeah. And for the lay person, what you would do is you would get a shoebox and then you would get for maybe go to person. Michael's or, you know, an art store and you get little characters and, you know, little trees or things like that. And you can, you know, make a scene. That's in there. right. So if you're like, if you're greeting someone and you used to love to go to a baseball game, you can make a little diorama of you guys at a baseball game and put yeah. all the fun. Well, that was a hot dogs. And then that's the team that we used to watch. And go wild. Like you go wild. And it's you really, know, you have... they're really fun to do too. They're, they're really, really fun, fun to do. And yeah, shoe boxes, I think are pretty common. I think, I don't, I think they still, occasionally I see elementary school shoebox dioramas posted somewhere so I, I know it's happening somewhere still it's still alive <laughs> the, the diorama world but it is I'm still alive it's very vibrant actually there's a lot of incredible diorama work going on in the, in the world these days but does that make sense Nasser did you know what a diorama was before yeah I've had some idea of it but I didn't really think much of how it could be used for our kind of work the way you describe it it's definitely interesting I, I do want to see it with my own eyes so a picture especially if any blog or any video that we're having on this topic would be great. Yeah, well, no, that'd be fun to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nasser, do you have any uh, final questions? What I really want to know is, do you think the whole idea of using the virtual space and virtual education that one washcloth provides, do you think that this can really help impact the way people view death and grief, the virtual space and virtual education, things like BBG, what we do, blogs, videos, meetings, seminars. Oh, yes, I do. If people just need to be shown oftentimes, if people know that they need something, they just don't know maybe how to access it. But if you, we have these models of people doing it or where tools are being shown to how to, how to approach things, it may not work for everybody, but it's going to work for a lot of people. It's going to help a lot of people. So yes, I do. I'm a big fan of bounce back generation for everything you guys are doing so yeah i do think so i think whatever we we use whatever we've got to help get people some help and tools out there 
Yeah, the virtual space, we, we at BBG, we've discovered the virtual space is incredibly powerful. There's so much you can do with the virtual You're space. You're opening my eyes to a lot of it. I, I'm coming from a nursing world where podcasts were almost it, a foreign fact, word. It's actually really, I do not understand. The internet has been around for 20 years. Why isn't it everywhere? When cars were invented, 20 years later, people were flying across <laughs> continents. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but... years, not even like 50 something years after the plane, people were already on the moon. The Internet is almost at, at a quarter century old. Why isn't it in healthcare? Why isn't it everywhere? Why is it? I think we're learning how to use it still. And that's part of what we're doing is how can we use this in a really positive and fulfilling way, even though we all recognize that in person and touching someone is really important. But this is the second best way. Right. So just to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Susan. You've been fantastic. I feel like no. there's 50 more questions we could ask you. Yeah. And I'm really glad that we're working together to, to bring some of your training and talk about one washcloth and we'll share more through this podcast, but also through our website, bbgtv.org, where we will include videos about how to do some of the ritual process and the grieving process. And, and we'll show some dioramas and collages and, and it'll be really great. One thing that we do at the end of every podcast is we really try to connect that idea that we are bounced back, which is about emotional resilience building. And then there's the generations because we really try to understand how we influence each other generation to generation. There's generational trauma, but there's also generational support. So we always ask people at the end of our podcast, who made a difference for you when you were growing up? I guess it'd be my grandparents. So if I were really to have to choose people that were very involved with my childhood or so minimally involved really, but more than any other people. Yeah, my grandparents, they, they seemed to offer that unconditional love and just a place where I could go and be a kid and eat cookies. And just that break that a lot of us, I think, need who come from homes that not necessarily ran smoothly. Yeah, I'd say from younger, the young, my younger age, uh, younger years, it would have been my grandmother, especially on my father's side. Yeah. That's great. And that's, and that helps us to show the building blocks for resilience and that relationship. So one of the building blocks is relationship. The other one is protection. So having a safe place where someone loves you, and then is supportive of you. So that's confidence building. Maybe they taught you some coping skills. Okay, how to stay calm or how to accept things. They gave yeah. you a place where you felt like you belonged. You're welcome there. And maybe storytelling, which is what we're doing now. Having an opportunity mm -hmm. to talk about how you feel and what happened to you. Yeah. So those relationships are so important. Thank you, Susan. This is great. And I'm glad that we're, we're working together and we'll have more to Thanks share with, with our followers. Thank you, Jennifer and Nasser. This was a, really a joy for me. Thank so you, yeah, I look so forward. Much. Yeah, look forward to our next con connection. Thanks for listening. Our producer is Liam Donaldson. Music by Jogging Turtle. Please subscribe to this podcast. It really helps us to grow. If you like the topics we discuss and would like to support our nonprofit, please visit bouncebackgeneration.org to learn more about us and please consider donating to help us along.